Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special returning guest is David Murrin. David Murrin, welcome back to the show. Welcome, Tim and Paul. It's uh, really nice to be back with you. I love the last podcast we did. It was great fun. Yeah, I re- really enjoyed it. Um, obviously, you made some predictions last time. And which one of those have worked out in the way that you expected and w- which ones haven't? Uh, okay, so the really, uh, I think the big one market-wise was back at uh, 15,000. We predicted the NASDAQ high would be 6720 and turned out to be 67.40, where um, our recommendations and services put all our clients super max long with less than a percent from the highs and a stop just at the highs. And that trade has unfolded spectacularly. Uh, And my prediction at the stage when I was with you is that was the high in place. And we had seen a high that would last at least a decade and that we were in the early stages of the implosion of what I call the doomsday bubble which is really the bubble of the collapse of the American empire. Um, And so far, the price action supports that point. And I would uh, argue that right now we're sitting at the elastic limit where things are about to uh, break through the downside and really accelerate, where any bull is well and truly relinquished of their perspective on the world along with their P&L. I was looking at your elastic limit, so to speak, earlier. Is it Boyle's law? Extension is proportionate to load. Oh, Hooke's law. It's Hooke's law, isn't it? I'm, yes, I'm stretching up yeah. pre-O-level physics now. Extension is proportional to load, provided the material is not permanently deformed. And, and I, I thought, do I win a prize? You do, you do, but you looked that up, didn't you? Come on, no, out, I didn't. It's, it's ingrained on my memory. David, let me introduce you to Tim Price. <laughs> Google goes to him for information. Uh. But you know, but 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 Tim, we joke aside. But it was this idea that, and exactly what happens in 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 a wave count that the first portion of the decline seems like you know force and application and linear, and then you reach an elastic limit in collective psychology, and the whole lot just collapses like a heap of jello. And I think we are exactly at that point. And interestingly enough, after the Fed's decision to raise rates rate seventy five basis points. I think very few people have really thought about what that means. And, and I would argue that before that, their strategy of survival was the adoption of denial, as in inflation was temporary. If we all just held our nerve, it would all go back to normal. Well, they decided that's not the case. And they've decided they're now going to fight inflation. And the only lever they have is to raise rates. So there's no longer a delusionary perspective towards inflation. Inflation is now a hard reality. And in previous periods, like the 75 high, they managed to get rates up to 15% with 15% CPI. So what they've really turned around and said is we are about to go and match rates to inflation. And we all know that the markets cannot take that paradigm. I was going to say, do you, do you believe, do you believe a, sing, a, single, a single syllable of what they're saying on the rates? Because it strikes me that all they can do is jaw-jaw now. But look, the problem is that I don't even think we're going to get to another rate rise because the stock market is going to collapse away. Yeah. And all you know, and so and you're already seeing a demand collapse in terms of the commodity cycle, which I was successfully able to predict, simply because we've had wave one of the commodity surge peaked, you know, through through the Ukraine Ukraine crisis, and we've been coming off ever since in what I call the wave two, or anyone else call a wave two, which is which is a demand collapse as the the equity markets collapse at the same time. Now, they will recover far quicker than equities because there are other dynamics we can talk about. So that 
this this unfolding of this collapse ha- we've been right on top of and um i would describe the psychology of the markets right now is the last vestiges of bond dips happened about a week ago mm. and since the dip and the rate rise i think that people are probably just as long as they were but they're quietly looking at each other thinking now what mm. uh, which is exactly the conditions of a third wave extension and, and a most likely crash if i'm very honest with such a one-sided disposition so that was that's one call that's been very successful market wise uh, I was able to call the peak of the bond market, but I didn't really get the. I wasn't very well in the first week of this year, and I missed the entry point. And that trend has really careered in terms of predicting the direction and the depth. That's been successful. Um, now I would expect that it's pretty sold out, and we'll see some reflex bounce on bonds. It's very significant, simply as people think demand is dropping, inflation actually is suddenly going to disappear because that's what you do with a, a crash, which I would think is a magnitude of 1929 squared. So, I mean, to, just to put a figure on on that, the if, if my recollection is correct, between twenty nine and thirty two, the Dow Jones Industrial Average lost eighty nine percent of its value. So, so my, the the roadmap that I'm working towards, and you are correct, is that this is the biggest bear market in one hundred and twenty years, if not longer. It is the bear market that comes at the end of an empire cycle of the super Western Christian empire. So. I think this initial decline is targeting somewhere between 10 and 20% below the 2020 lows. And once we get there in a horrendous thump, there will be a period of recovery that may be up to 12 months. And that recovery will be pretty flat as, you know, maybe 50% if you're lucky, probably 38% to be honest, because I expect inflation to truly just keep going up because it's not just driven by input inflation. It's driven by the reverse manufacturing out of China, and it's driven by the wall of printed money waiting to fall on our heads. If that, if, if this, sorry to interrupt. If this comes to pass, then would you anticipate that all other major stock markets will be impacted to a similar... Um, yes, they're all going to do very yeah. similar things. They're all targeting the you know 10% below the 2020 lows as your initial targets. Some kind of oversold spike down there, a correction, you know, that is pretty dead cap with time more than price. And then a second decline, which takes you back to the lows of 03, 07, because that's where all the extensions really started from. And that's ultimately where they started printing money when America went into the fifth stage of empire, which is terminal decline. So I think we're looking at three years of the most brutal bear market we've ever seen. And what conditions begat that process? Well, it's the end of an empire. You can't print money to leverage zero growth or teeny growth to something. You can't, ta- your- can't taper a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, exactly right. End of the Ponzi scheme. Um, America is facing a hegemonic challenge uh, that is truly frightening in terms of China. I've argued on your show that essentially I don't believe the U.S. carrier groups can get to Taiwan anymore. So that Taiwan is a sitting duck waiting for the moment when the Chinese think it's appropriate. And I think you have to lump in North Korea moving south to South Korea uh, because the, it isn't just about Taiwan anymore. It's about the capture of the, the Asian basin under Chinese control and the ejection of any Western influence. So I think we really are on that cusp of the next stage. Uh, just, in, just in case anyone's a little bit distressed by this, I, I can share with you some cheerful news. I uh, got fifty pounds on the premium bonds the other day. Oh, well done! Really? Yeah. So the question is, how much did you invest to get your fifty pounds? On, I'm not. Just... I, I'm going to take the fifth on that one. <laughs> well, well there's a limit, prin- isn't there? There's a. 40, what is your underlying limit. principle, like you know, for the, your fifty pounds? 
again, I'm going to take the fifth on that one. So okay. it's under instruction from my legal team. So, <laughs> so let me ask a question about the cycles because we had Akil Patel on, which listeners would have will be well will have heard by the time they hear this one. Um, it's not actually released as yet, but it will have been. And he, uh, it, you know, he's been very accurate with his calls. And his view was that we are about to turn, um, perhaps not immediately, but we're close to. And his prediction is that there will be a renewed bull market with inflation. This will be mirrored by the dollar falling and a bull run in commodity markets, which will be driven by money printing by the banks. And this will be the run up to the final wave that you're talking about. So either the final wave is now and we're in it, as you were saying, um, or he's right and we're going to turn around and go up. So it's a very interesting point in time. And I did ask him the question, you know, what, what, what would make you believe that you were wrong? And um, I mean, he seemed pretty confident in his, in his call, but obviously w nobody's got the monopoly on being right or wrong. And um, we all have to change our view if, if the circumstances show. But, but what would you say would change your view if, um, okay, if the market so started to rally? Well, there are two elements to this, right? And one is this, my price modeling, which not just looks at one market, but 80 macro markets and they're interfacing. So think of a three-dimensional hologram where I gain information. And, you know, you can have a chart in one area, but it needs to be backed up by the deck of related things. And I've never seen a picture that's so supportive across all of the linkages of this scenario. Now, I think that if it's going to break lower, any corrections we have at this stage will be contained by sideways moves without steep corrections. So any kind of you know powerful up move in the S&P or the stock markets back up to the highs or near the highs that we saw a couple of weeks ago before the recent lurch, that wouldn't be part of my scenario. Right now, I expect to see consistent weakness followed by a very powerful breakdown. Now, I have some sympathy with his perspective because a third of a third also can look like the end of a correction before it does it yeah can, so I, can I, I just yeah. can i just let the listeners know because you're using highly technical terms and some people will know what that means and some people won't a third of a third in elliott wave terms is the most powerful move in a trend so elliott waves move in five key direction well it's five key waves in the direction of the main trend and the most powerful move comes in the middle of it so if you can ma imagine the market is gaining momentum up till the kind of the middle part of the trend and that's where the third of the third phrase comes in which means that it moves extremely fast at that point so sorry sorry to cut in but i just thought we should no, explain no, it's it. absolutely fine it's it actually there is another point the fifth of the fifth can be powerful but the third of the third is the point at which essentially psychology flips from being bullish to bearish if it's a bear move you just get a complete sea change and everyone wanting to get out now the the picture to me is quite powerful across the different macro components but i think that the ace in my hand is my five stage of empire model and it's predictive its ability to understand and predict the end of the american empire as the last of the western christian empires before britain's a new one in the next cycle because that's different and the power of that model suggests that you cannot sustain america where it is right now for another upward cycle it's cooked and it's cooked because of the regulation of the, the C wave of the Kondratiev wave that started in 2020, of which we've had wave one, we know we're going to dip and a dip in demand. Well, where does demand come from? It comes from the implosion of asset prices. 
and also the war cycles, which I would argue World War II. The other prediction I made to you on the show with a 95% certainty is that Putin would invade Ukraine. And that is a prediction I made back in uh, September, very clearly. And that was based on the Kondratiev cycles ability, which since 2020 or 2000, to basically fund Putin's expansive ambitions. And I've used the same chart to brief the British military in terms of how it became very predictable in terms of commodity price behavior, that if we didn't get Russia on side before the low of 2020, afterwards, the price appreciation would embolden him enormously with the power of the commodities he sold to the world and the way it filled his coffers up. And the positioning that he had made in various statements and actions, which added, were added on to the route from Afghanistan, which was a sign of huge weakness on behalf of the Biden leadership. All of those things predicted a certain outcome. And so the reason why I think we're into the multiple friction point is not just what's going on in Russia in terms of the invasion. It is the total failure of the West to confront the fact it's really at war with with Russia. I mean, in what world does a Lend-Lease program last used between America and Britain in 1940, and reminding your viewers of that, for literally over a year before Pearl Harbor took place, American ships were bringing supplies with American warheads across the, uh, warships with across the Atlantic, defending against U-boats, and a neutral America was engaging U-boats and vice versa. America was at war with Germany in all but name. In the case of Ukraine, we have our intelligence assets on the borders looking into the battlefield, directing Ukrainian you know, forces with special forces relaying on the ground. We're providing with weapons and training and funding. Now, what part of that has not been a war with Russia? And yet we live in this deluded Western world that prefers to use the war word where we might have to spend something on defense and, and actually enhance our, our deterrent process. And it was a real relief to hear General Sanders talking about the fact the army has to gear itself to potentially fighting Russia. It's just the first official person that said that in this world of delusion. And we're the forefront of protecting Ukraine, thanks to Boris's identification that Ukraine's future and his future were matched singularly. Uh, and the net effect is that we did step out and part of the Brexit process would be expansive to support Ukraine. The internal reasons are quite fascinating, but unless we did, but we haven't gone far enough to create a deterrence effect. And meanwhile, in in China, it's literally just a matter of time before the shoe drops and he and she invades Taiwan because Taiwan can't be, I think, supported by the US Navy for the reasons I mentioned to you at the time with with hypersonic weapons that basically will, will take out carrier groups. They can't put enough escorts to protect even clustered carriers. So the, the, everything has changed in front of our eyes. So I think the combination of inflation, the way the war's evolving, our response, Xi's ambition. I mean, for example, she's seeking to be able to do the same thing as Putin did, call it a special military operation and not refer to the rest of the Communist Party. There's only one reason why you put a piece of policy through like that is because you plan to use it. So um, I can't see this being recoverable in any way. But, you know, markets have two views. I remain open minded and my parameters remain the same, really, that we shouldn't really go above the previous significant high a couple of weeks ago. And how do you see commodity markets playing out? Because obviously, if there's demand destruction, there's the stock market going down. Even if rates go lower, that's obviously not going to help. Will there be a commodity boom to cause stagflation? Uh, well, look, we're already in stagflation because our inflation levels are quantumly above our, our real productive levels. 
uh, and even you know leverage productive levels. So we've been in stagflation for quite a while actually, but it's a question of mega stagflation, hyper stagflation. So I don't see that situation changing in any way until in the West we learn the lessons that you can only match that kind of inflation by accelerated productivity. And only one country in the world can do that, and that's Britain by lowering taxes to flat tax levels to attract capital to supercharge our economy. Europe can't do it, and America can't do it. And I'd fund that with a war loan type structure of 50 years at 3%. And I'd issue trillions of it right now. A, I'd prepay for my defense using that process. And B, I would use it to go and make structural changes of revenues through taxation um, before that becomes impossible. And I think this if there is a bond corrective rally as equities fall, that's the moment for a government to fund itself on an epic scale using that process. Um, and if I was advising the Treasury, I would be using a megaphone actually in the ear over that one. Is there not a risk that the bond market will just puke at the thought of yet more debt issuance by a government that's already effectively bankrupt? Well, uh, I, not if everyone's switching out of equities, essentially, mm. to go into bonds because they can't think of anything else to do with it. Mm. And where, where else can you get a market big enough to do that? So I think we will get a classic risk reversal. Which is just sheer desperation, and because I su- I su- sorry to cut in, I, I suppose where I'm what I'm thinking of is, is what's happening in the sort of the technical deterioration of prospects in in Japan, where you know they've they've decided they're they're going to they're going to suppress ten year JGB or Japanese government bond yields, but in the process they're destroying the currency. Yeah, yeah, and and you know that whole thing about what do you do when you're running out of you're in a corner and you're running out of options, mm. and you know Japan's in that position, and and we're going to be in a very similar position in the West, and Britain has a little bit more latitude, but I've got to say our chances about as linear as a person can be, and all he really seems to be enthusiastic about is giving other people's money away to be popular, hasn't mm. created one constructive wealth policy mechanism or one uh, anticipatory response to the situation around him, and that's exactly what we don't need right now we need lateral leadership that understands how these cycles work and to ride these cycles speaking, um, speaking of rubbish politicians what do you rate the chances of uh, boris staying in office for any length of time well, from well the, the one i was going to talk about that so my th- third prediction of the time so so there are a couple my predict one of the predictions was inflation would become endemic and rampant which we can tick off uh, at a time when people didn't see that. Um, the other one was essentially that the uh, the Ukrainians would make a nuclear breakout, and they are really right on the cusp of that. And you can assume when every other distraction takes place, they will be doing that, and the Israelis could well respond very vigorously with mushroom clouds as their only response. So we've got to watch for that. And the, the last one was that Boris wouldn't make it, um, and I stand by that. I stand by the fact that um, Boris is, and I started talking about when he deviated from the path of success to failure was his tolerance of incompetence of those people around him and mm. the incompetencies that he manifested himself. And interestingly enough, people say, well, what's the difference in the past 20 years? And I would argue that Britain and its Brexit process, as you know, was a regional civil war. The, the, the defining point between regionalization and expansion, which is stage one and stage two, We achieved that, as I mentioned before, without killing each other, which is truly a historic experience, containing that energy with democratic frameworks very successfully. Uh, But its real purpose in a social sense is to remove linear leadership through combat and Darwinistic mechanisms and replace it with lateral leadership. 
And so obviously Boris is extremely lateral. In fact, his failing is he's just totally lateral without any other skill sets and his personality framework doesn't have any boundaries either. But the problem is we didn't actually change our government. And our government, when they got rid of Cummings, who was an agent of change but unable to deliver change because of the number of chips he carried on his shoulders and everywhere else, mm. essentially meant that once they got rid of Cummings, there was no other agent of change and government went back to being horrendously linear. So one of the problems we have is not just with Boris's massive shortfalls as a as a leader, as a thinker, and, and his value set, is he, they're advised by linear people that are unable to predict anything that is coming down the track. And until we change that, whatever policies you offer them will always be rejected in favor of collective perceptions, which are not going to work in an entropic environment. So we need to complete that social engineering. And I think the amount of stuff that's about to come on board will do that, whether it's, you know, Putin making Britain number one target because we're the ones that galvanized Europe into resisting in Ukraine. Uh, and those 4,000 in-laws really did make a difference thanks to Xi's request to go late. And the extra two weeks meant that, meant that you know, the, the, the land started to thaw out. They meant created choke points where in-laws could be operated. There was a unique window of opportunity to ablate the charge by Putin. It wasn't just skill and, the, you know, and dysfunction in the Russian army. It was just one of those, you know, weapon systems arrival, key moments, choke points altogether. And we've been congratulating ourselves, saying the Russian army is incompetent. And I kept warning people that all systems adapt in combat. And we've seen adaptation in Russia. We've seen targeting cycles increase, you know, long-range targeting cycles, things we've taken for granted in the West. We've seen interdiction of supply lines from the West to the East. So even if they, we give them artillery, some of it doesn't get there. And that's a problem. And we've seen this concert where they just concentrate their artillery on a grid square. Anyone in the grid square goes underground. They're in their bunkers and along comes a thermobaric weapon and everyone dies. And right now the Ukrainians have been eaten alive because the West hasn't given them what they need even though there's lots of words around it. And I think only recently the whole Peter the Great construct and the idea that CIA states are part of Russia as, as Putin threatened Kazakhstan really underlines the fact this man is hyper expansive. And I suspect that what his calculation is, he just has to keep making gradual progress and wait until China comes in on his side which he knows is inevitable. And at that stage, we're all, to, we're, all we're fighting so many buckets of water into the ship that mm -hmm. he has all sorts of opportunities to move. And I think the danger of this bleed Putin dry construct is threefold. One is the Chinese will come in at some stage and seriously support the Russians. We could even see Chinese troops along with Russian troops, and that would change the ball game massively because there's one thing the Chinese have is a massive army able to, dis mm -hmm. to, to uh, dispose itself. The next is that the Chinese, much as the Russians are learning from the new combat techniques, the Chinese are seriously learning from them. And you can, you know, one of the biggest is drone warfare. We knew it was going to be a revolution, but watching it be that revolution is completely different. The biggest manufacturers of sophisticated drones in the world are the Chinese. So you can assume that they're evolving combat techniques that you know, probably are right on the edge on a mass and scale we're not used to. And one of the things I think is really interesting is that if you look at the sort of armies of 19... 1918 and the British Army, by the time the spring offensive came, which is in April sort of um, 1918, the Royal Flying Corps of 20,000 aeroplanes, along with the Royal Naval Air Service, basically was a tactical air force par excellence. And the ablation of that strike came with this tactical air force and its ground attack process, but it was, it was related to the Army's activities. And the moment the RAF appeared, they had strategic bombing on their list and weren't interested in tactical support. So I think drones represent the, the exciting possibility for ground forces of returning themselves to having a tactical air force within their control. 
and that's a massive revolution where basically you control the air above you and you know and drones will provide that for whichever sides picks up the ball so um just to go back to a point that you were making about the uk are you more bullish on sterling against say the euro and perhaps even the us dollar you know i am okay okay <laughs> yeah and i'll give you i'll give you two reasons why i am um one is the i think we are seeing right now uh, we've seen the reversal in the dollar across the board whether it's a dollar index whether it's euro dollar swiss and cable and this is the point from now on when all that money that went in from overseas into the american bubble starts to return so the repatriation of investment from the other parts of the world that had no growth into America will come back. And that's why we're going to see stock markets go down with the dollar. Now, the other one that, you know, if you follow the RMB or the, you know, the Chinese currency from its high about a year ago is a very clear impulsive move. And then there's a correction then there's a sharp move up. And yeah. lots of people are telling me, well, they're going to depreciate their currency because that's what they already do. Looks like I it. strongly disagree. Right. I think if you, this is the, corrective point of the first surge and that currency because it's a new hegemonic currency will gain massively against the dollar and there's a reason why that they're not going to depreciate it intentionally and that is in 2020 they shifted from a, a manufacturing export driven economy and no one has just talked about this which amazes me to an internally fueled consumer society where basically there's enough consumers with a gap to take the product and one of the reasons why we've seen supply line constraints I don't think it's about supply lines. It's also about the constriction of manufacturing to the Western world because that's not part of the agenda. And the last country that created that particular paradigm was Nazi Germany after the invasion of the Rhinelands in March 1936. And then you full well they had four years before they were bankrupt. So if someone had explained this to Chamberlain, there was no such thing as peace in his time because the Germans had to move or they would mm. go bankrupt. And we're seeing something very similar in China where you know that gap is big enough to basically really cut the demand cycle in China. It hasn't fully mobilized its extra manufacturing capacity into, into war developments, but we will see it very quickly do that. And so we're sitting in a situation where global demand is not only suffering from the US you know, and the bubble bursting its side, but the Chinese system that used to create that uplift to the world has now actually withdrawn into its own sphere of influence and bifurcated in anticipation increasingly because it's preparing for war. So with regard to the commodity answer that you gave, you were saying, um, are we looking at hyperinflation? I just wanted to be clear. Are you saying we are going to be seeing a commodity boom? And do you think that will include precious metals, gold and silver? Okay. So let's just take let's just take the, the let's take the commodity cycle first. So if you took um, the beginning of this K wave cycle in 2000 to 2011-10, depending on which one it is, that's the A wave. Then we had a decade of B wave, like counter trend pricing, but more than enough to build up Putin's coffers, which ended at the low of March 2020. And we're now in the C wave. That C wave will be the most impulsive commodity cycle we have seen in 200 years. Why? Because you've got two great consumer systems fighting over the same amount of resources. And that's one of the worst byproducts of what took place over the Syrian red line and the revolution that we inspired in Ukraine that pushed Putin firmly into the camp of China. Because now you've got a huge commodity producer with an overland link to the, one of the biggest consumers, which strategically is massive. And we lose it, gas in Europe, the case in point. So, so 
strategically, there's that dynamic happening. What we've seen since 2020 is a really clear impulse, five waves up to the highs about six weeks ago. And since then, every commodity that I look at has already started its wave two. And that wave two could retrace between 50 to 60% of the move upwards. And it would be coincident with the stock market literally falling out of bed. But it won't last because what happens at the bottom of that cycle is we get increased conflict friction and its scarcity of resources and the whole conflict dynamics will be the driver of the third wave. Now, if you look at your inflation expectations through this process, we are going to go as the demand system drops and commodities seem to drop in price. You will see inflation being less of an issue and the temporary merchants will come out and say, see, I told you it's going to return to normal levels. Because look, you know, we've fallen out of bed, aka 1929. But there are two other types of inflation which are even bigger in many ways. One is that the way that inflation responded in this contractive cycle is nothing like the one before, because someone had a bright spark of giving China all our manufacturing, which kept that inflationary dynamic absolutely low for 20 years. But the interest that you pay when it comes back to you is horrendous. So we've got that process to look forward to. It's happening already and it's going to accelerate. And the moment, of course, China moves into Taiwan, all of the sanction processes which happened to Russia will happen to China. You'll have no choice. So if you're a business with a supply chain in China, you should really get a heads up. Imagine what it was like if you had a supply chain into Russia and what happened to you. You need to make you need to make your plans ahead of time, not at the time, because you don't mm. survive it. So the supply chain issue is number two of the drivers in inflation. And then the third one is this just dam of behind it is all the printed money. And and as you know all too well, that you know, money is a function of confidence. And as we go through this process of consistent erosion, imagine, you know, we're going down to the lows of 2020 and below and the stock market has blown its brains out and inflation is going up. Now, there is no precedent for that dynamic apart from the Weimar Republic. That's probably the closest experience that we can think of in the Western world. And we know what happened with that social trauma and all sorts of problems. So I think that we're going to end up with this think or idea that inflation is pausing, which is where you get this corrective price action on the bond markets. And then the reality that really the whole thing is completely out of control. What, what's and your time frame for that, for that move? So look, I, I think you can assume that this fall happens within the next six months imminently and keeps going because you don't want, even when you, you know, you dump, you don't make the low the next day, but you may do with this. I'm open to all options, to be honest. Um, so you've got to keep your mind open. And in this process, you'll get the bond market going and correcting. And then the reality of the other portions of inflation, despite demand dropping, are such that by Christmas, that'll all have changed again. Yeah. Um, so at what point do you, th are you looking at sort of the 100 year anniversary, uh, anniversary of the crash as a timing potentially for, for a low and for the market to then go back up because you've, you've said this will be a bigger crash than the than anything we've see, seen previously but there will be a low at some point and um i'm, I'm sure we're going to have you on the, the show well before then but just just to okay see. so let, let me just let me just play a kind of game with you let's just say we don't crash but we dislocate it's just to pick a nice conservative version the, the the third wave that comes is you know not a crash but it's a control drop of 20 percent in which case, somewhere around 10% below is the midpoint of where we are now. 
which hang on, I'm going to get my, I'm going to do this for you. So as you're putting me on the spot, I'm trying to do this as accurately as I can, because I think that's a nice way of doing it for people. So yeah. Excuse me. I, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to put you on the spot, but. No, I, no, I was, no, 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 uh, no, I, no, I like questions like this and I'm into quantification rather than, you know, like generic drivel. So, yeah, okay. Cause, so, because if, if the markets go down very quickly as they did in 29, we could be looking at a low yeah, within could, a year you and could a half. Be there, we could be there in a month. It's, it's not out of the question. But and what is interesting, and then the at the moment we've got from the highs in say the S and P, we've got at least four moves of impulse correction, impulse correction, impulse correction, which are normally match the other side of the midpoint. So let's just say our midpoint is thirty four. Yeah, you see, I can see us going down to maybe eighteen hundred, and when you get round, however you get there, around eighteen hundred to fifteen hundred, that is the extreme price for this move. And if you're smart and you buy those, you will see a very powerful correction. So you're Back talking up. now. You're talking S and P rather than Dow, obviously. Yes, I'm talking S and P. Okay. Yeah, I, I, but but in terms of and in terms of if it was all steady state stuff, then you'll find that low would be reached somewhere in Thanksgiving, and and and, uh, and if the whole lot doesn't fall out of bed, you know, and run its course. Wow. Okay. So so by Thanksgiving it'll be a one year bear market then, which is you know not too dissimilar from the oh one oh three cycle or the oh seven oh eight cycle could start a little earlier than that, but I feel like you we're going to have an elastic breakdown. Oh, I don't see. I, I think we're most likely to have an elastic breakdown because everyone is one way after the twenty year habit of buying dips, and you know full well they're just as long here as they were at the highs. Yeah. So um, that usually ends up with a, a small door and lots of people trying to get through it. I mean, it's not te- it's not technical on my side because I'm not a technical analyst, so I, that doesn't mean I don't you know I don't uh, um, respect technicians. It's not something I do personally, but it it, it is if you like a, a soft. Uh, intimation that we we're nowhere near the capitulation revulsion stage yet. There's no, I think of confidence. Uh, you know, in fact, if I described it, what you've really got is everyone is just as bullish as they have been throughout most of these experiences, and they haven't really had that construct dented. Mm. So before you get to the process of exhaustion, you've got to get to the midpoint where people go, "Oh shit, I'm the wrong way around. Now I've got to start changing my positions around." Be interesting so, to see what um, what the the crypto community think though, because some of these people will have been taken out, taken to the cleaners over the last few months. Yeah, well, look, that's another one that I've been has been a very successful call in that I uh, predicted at sixty six where we went short against that sixty eight fifty high, that we would get down to twenty one, and uh, I recently covered it at twenty one. The cycle is a fifth wave of a of a fourth wave cycle, so its price patterns are just stunningly accurate. And the psychology too. I don't think we're over because I think there's one more giant washout with the breakdown in stock markets. But at some stage, will be a divergence, funny enough. And I think there's a possibility about Bitcoin being the safe haven people talk about. But, you know, you're buying it about 10,000 and then it goes to 100. And I'm really interested in that trade now, having yeah. captured you know, the, the, the corrections in the sideways. I love that trade because you know you'll be able to bung a tight stop on probably because you got lower multiples lower down and it behaves like a multiple return equity. Much easier to trade than on the way down. Um, and you asked about gold and silver. So one of the changes that um, that probably since we spoke is that I am, you know, I think it is a safe haven when it's gold, silver, platinum, safe haven. Except we went sideways. Uh, and I've traded those corrections really well to increase the sort of the highs and lows of them. Uh, and then when it broke out towards the highs, of course, I was really in up. I raised my stop profit levels. So we took something out of that. But the reversal below 1830 
is the is is a signal that we haven't got out of our lateral correction yet and that we've got some big washout to come possibly down to 15 or even 14 on gold before the bull can take hold and um so i'm i'm very much in the camp of expect a metals washout now how would that come about quite simply this demand slump makes people think inflation isn't the issue and they're all super long thinking that it's going to save them and it's also a liquidity bank for equities and their portfolios imploded so i think we are going to get that precious metal washout and it's all about the the precise timing of entry of course like it always is for the next cycle i know it's not far away but i think there's enough downside to want to be short here against some tight stops because no one else is and platinum's leading the way very nicely and looking rather vulnerable so um i think it's a it's a case where the people who thought ahead who are really smart actually still get caught which leads me to what we're really going through here we're not going through like a bit of a protobation in markets we're going through a total wave of wealth destruction of the western christian world's wealth and it's like everything you touch in sequence unless you're really really clever at it is going to bite you mm. so do you think socially things like the the woke movement will will start to dissipate as the markets go down is that, is yeah, so so it's such a great question i love that. that's why i really enjoyed my first call with you um so there are two things that bull markets and bear markets do so one of the reasons why the west i would argue has been so laissez-faire about the threats from china and from um russia is not just because our politicians have been bought off by them intentionally on a scale that's really scary, whether it's Boris's family or whether it's Biden's family with the Chinese or the Russians in London, which have kept that sort of smoke and fog of the warning bells being not been rung. But the other thing is actually a collective behavioral pattern. Bull markets create massive amounts of dopamine and people on dopamine can't see a lion about to bite them on the arse even at five, five feet. And so that dopamine response has been right up until the peak of the bull market. And it still probably was there up until about six weeks ago. And now we're seeing its replacement with cortisol. And when the cortisol starts to flow, because money people lose money, they will start to see the real magnitude of the, the threats, the existential threats our society faces as well. And as you quite rightly point out, I often think this whole woke thing on Laszlo's hierarchy of leads is exactly what you do when you think you're safe and your your system is secure. And it's a hubristic experience because when you think that, you're usually in decline. You're not on the way up. Mm. So actually, the, 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 the hierarchy of needs is going to, if you're a Ukrainian, and just imagine this model, and, you know, the woke culture was took hold in Ukraine. Right now, the only thing matters is you as a man can hold a rifle and fight effectively. If you can't contribute to that, you're not a contributor to society. And society becomes very harsh on processes like that. And it's no coincidence that both Russia and China have banned any kind of woke moves because they perceive it to be a weakening of national intent. So as we get more and more deeply into trouble, which is inevitable, I your comment, I think, is correct. We will see it disappear. And the demands on those people that have followed that creed will be to contribute to society and stand up. Yeah, I, th I think socially that um, the way things operate is very similar to um, a body's immune system. And if, you, if the body immune system doesn't have anything to fight, it will start to fight itself. It's so true, so true. And so you have exactly the same in the, you know, in socially within a, um, within the, the way people operate, if they've got nothing to fight against, if they've got no hardship, then they start turning on themselves and turning on the system and finding things that, to be angry about. And that's yes. almost, almost how I see it 
coming because there's so many people of a certain age who will look and say, we want to be inclusive to people and we do want everybody to feel that the world is fair as, as much as possibly could be. Um, I, I'm sure um, many people have grown up in schools with, with many different types of people and, and um, no one had to be pointed out for whatever reason. Everyone was, you know, well, I mean, I can only speak from my own experience. You know, we had a very, you know, culturally different um, school and it was just great and nobody thought anything of it. And, and why we keep talking about issues that we, I personally think we should have moved on from. There, are, there should be bigger problems, but actually I don't think there are. And um, I, I don't think it was until the lockdown that things started to turn around where we started to look at um, th that as a big problem and what the governments were doing as a big problem. And I, I see that as a point where perhaps things start, that's where it started to weaken the, the woke idea because there was this sort of existential threat to people's businesses, to their freedoms, and to all those things. And yes, there will be some crossover, but where it really, where it really turns has got to be when the markets turn. And yes, and I'm, I, 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 and it can only be the end of a, a sort of an empire type scenario that could have caused it in the first place. I, I think that's exactly how I describe it. It's a hubris of terminal decline, to be honest, um, because every other part of it on the way up, the whole system suborns itself for people to be productive and serve the system first. So self actually becomes a secondary importance to the collective's needs. And only in decline do you end up with this process where self is more important than the collective and you end up with narcissistic leadership all over the place, which has been apparent in Trump, Obama and Boris and all sorts of other corporate leaders, to be fair. And this you know, expression of self-expression and expiration is a manifestation of that process. And I, we live in a democracy where we really do want everyone to find the best version of themselves. And I really don't mind what route they take to do that. But we're about to find out that you, first of all, have to also serve your nation and serve your society when survival comes along. And that's everyone should do that, whatever whatever they are, whoever they are. That's absolutely critical, as the Ukrainians have found out. And I suspect we're about to find out very soon ourselves. I, I was watching the um, Amber Heard, uh, Johnny Depp trial. And yeah, it, please don't judge me. I don't know how I got into it, but it was fascinating. And what I, what I think is it was it's obviously wrong for any man to hit a woman and for any woman to hit a man. I think both, both sides, we, we've got to accept that. But it's also wrong just to assume because you're a woman that everything you do and everything you say will be taken as gospel because once you get to court, that's not the way the courts work. And we had a very interesting conversation with Harry Miller um, from my previous podcast um, who made, made that clear that when, the further you go up the courts, the more reality will be given to people who don't realize that, that you can say and think what you want up to a point, but, you, but when it comes down to actual legal points, that's when the rubber really hits the road. And I think that it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting situation because it, it's reflective of potentially somebody who thinks that just because they are in a certain position that they can just say they, they feel as though something has happened and that there requires no further 
um, analysis of that, and the other party has to be guilty just because they're a white male. And that's yeah. that's not that isn't the way the world works. That's perhaps the way some people think, but that isn't actually the way the world works and shouldn't. And it's just because some because we indulge that view and allow it to happen up to a point because most of the time people just don't want to get into a subject like that. Um, but when it comes to actual legal cases, then then you will see these points properly made. Yeah, and you know the, the point about a legal system, it, it it needs to be founded in facts-based processes. And you know this, if I understand it correctly, it was all about did she defame him when she wrote in public, mm. and there seemed to be a public sort of the whole thing was interpreted as is she right or was he right and is he bad or was he good, and that was almost a television aspect of that's not what the legal process was trying, and uh, you know so I. I, uh, having been through some courts over various issues, you know, nothing criminal, I might add, but just, you know, in terms of business and stuff, it's a it's a very different domain once you get into that 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 courtroom and it's a difficult place to navigate. To then televise it the way it was done, I think um, was I, I think tele, I think they shouldn't be televised personally. I agree. I mean, I, totally I think agree. it turns into a com- total circus yeah. where the public and and then of course. But if you believe that humans are a collective system, as a collective decides that actually Johnny Depp is the character in Pirates of the Caribbean, because that's where they get the most evidence of him and it can't be him, that unconscious structure has to go and affect a jury system. So I think it's we really do need to be a little wiser about the nature of humanity and its collective dynamics and how it influences a jury process than we are at the moment. Um, we could just say if people weren't bred in the circuses, give it to them good and hard. So I didn't hear a word of that. Well, not I, I didn't hear it. So I, didn't <laughs> I was just, just going to say, if, if you could say, if people want bread and circuses, then you give you give both both of them good and hard. Bread and circuses, yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Goes the quote, yeah. Yeah, well, I suppose you're, too, and that's the other thing too. I think that's interesting is that if you know you look at um, the Colosseum and the and the role that um, theatres and gladiators and you know animal killing took, it was really to satisfy the plebiscy. They didn't rise up. Are you and, not entertained? Yes, exactly right. One of my favourite movies. And yeah. essentially, you know, we, it, we are in a system totally in decline. So distraction is a great relief to the political class because their leadership, if it's ever examined, would mean that they should be in the middle of that ring. So uh, I, I'm, I'm encouraged by Paul's point about uh, wokeness. I'm encouraged by some straws in the wind. I forget his name. I think it was Flint, but there was a guy from HSBC who... I made a, a somewhat sceptical pronouncement about climate change and ESG. And HSBC, despite having signed off on his presentations, summarily suspended him. But he got an awful lot of support in the city. I mean, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this in that um, I believe climate change is way worse. I'm, I'm a geophysicist by training, as you know. When I did the piece for my book, there's a whole chapter on climate change and the evidence from the Vladislav 800,000 years of ice curves is so clear. It's almost irrefutable. And if you think about the fact that if you use a chart, it's a sum total of all participants. And therefore, you may not be able to define the information they perceive, but their actions as a result of the information is 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 summed up in the way that a chart works. So one of the reasons why I think climate models fail is it just can't work out the infinite number of variables in their relationship. So how can you model it? But the but the, the parallel to that is the Vladislav ice curls because they factor in everything that created temperature and CO2 relationship changes. And it's very clear that if you 
correlate temperature and CO2 from those 800,000 years, we've already built in 11 degrees of temperature change. And it's just a question of how long the heat sinks take to absorb the heat coming in before we face the consequences. But I've argued that before we get to that point, we have to get through the hiatus of the commodity cycle's peak and World War III. So it's a question of prioritizing what your biggest threat is. And right now, we're our biggest threat to each other. Mm. And the survivors of that conflict will then have to deal with the second biggest threat, which is a cooked planet. It's, uh, I mean, it's a very contentious issue, isn't it, the climate? But there's no doubt that the climate is actually changing. I mean, there's absolutely none at all, because, of course, it does change. It's just a question of what's actually causing it. And I think that's, well, that's the bone of contention. Is it, are we causing it? Are we incidental? And science says people who say it's settled science that's not the purpose of science science is is nothing is settled in science nothing ever is settled in science everything is provisional until proven well, otherwise it, by a superior model well well, well it, it, i mean it, the way science works is if it's if you're a greek scientist you know from 2000 and a half years ago you came up with a theory you had 23 experiments and 22 didn't help it and one did and you said look i'm right there you go and then the thing about modern science is obviously you choose the 22 as your evidence and not the 23rd. And what we do see is evidentially, you're quite right, massive changes in our climate, which are unprecedented in, in the experience. Of, and our ice cores give us 800,000 years of, of, of data. So it isn't just in our lifetimes or mankind's modern lifetimes. We have that data. And the correlation at the moment, the natural assumption has to be that an exceptional event has taken place and industrialization is that exceptional event. Now, you're right. Maybe it's someone who's secretly put in a CO2 generator in the oceans we never noticed. Unlikely. I only say it not to be facetious, but you have to be open to another driver of it. But right now, the obvious driver is we did it what, and what, we've already done it. What about we the should, sun cycles? And, and because no, I... I I'm I, I'm a really you know so, okay so let's I hear the sunspot argument and you know I'm very open-minded as you probably gathered my work is based on show me the evidence and the correlations and I will you know I will do it so I don't lightly throw something away the thing that I took from my physicist time is find the first order second order and third order effects not the one that's seventh or eighth and at the moment you know the sun's heat generation is a lower order effect than the containment of heat within the greenhouse effect by a quanta. Right. So you're saying, so, sorry, could you could you just repeat? Yeah, okay. That? So, so 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 you need to look at the order of magnitude events uh, effects. So when you look at sunspot activity, which is to do with the sun's quadrupole, if you're not familiar with it, the Earth has a bi a bi a, 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 like a bar magnet in it. The case of bipole. And that bipole creates a magnetosphere. The magnetosphere acts like this protective mechanism to the solar wind, and it buffers and passes the solar wind. And Oriobolus and Oriostralis are where these particles come into the magnetic bottles, spin, get to the Earth where the field line's contained, and then they reverse, interact with the atmosphere, and create this green glow in the transmission of energy. Yeah. So that's the Earth's magnetosphere. So that's the aurora borealis, as people Yeah, exactly. Now, and when it really starts to glow on you, it's because essentially the solar wind is increasing intensities and therefore you're getting more particles in what looks like these magnetic bottles. If you imagine your bar chart or your bar magnet, like a banana bent between the poles and these things get trapped in them spinning around. And when the field lines contract, they rotate and they come back on their field lines. So the sun has a quadrupole 
which is four, as in four poles, two positives and two negatives. And this problem is, is a gas. So what happens is it spins at differential speeds and all the field lines get like bound up. And as they get bound up, this energy stores and then it corrects itself with sunspots and then eruptions. So in effect, it's the renormalization of a twisted field structure. And so the solar wind is one thing of charged particles, but the heat generated by the sun and sunspot activity is not linked to that process. And so it's one of these things that I, I have not found the evidence and certainly that the phenomena of sunspots generates sufficient heat difference hitting the Earth to account for the atmosphere being the same consistency and heat transmission varying. But I thought the sunspot was just a indication that the sun's temperature was changing, not that it was the spot that it, itself that was causing it. No, I, no the, spot, the spot is a temperature change, you're exactly right, but it comes with the field lines being tangled. Right. Okay. So, but so my in my imagination or my understanding of it, which obviously I I would need to have a, a closer look at, um, the temperature of the sun could be moving over a period of time. It could be increasing in its temperature, and I think when the first round of of um, climate change research was done, and I believe in the eighties, they they thought, okay, the sun is the sun. That's that big ball ain't changing it's it's going to stay the same so let's look at everything else what we realize now is actually the sun's overall temperature may be in a cycle of its own and that 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 may or may not be linked to what sunspot activity is doing i wouldn't i wouldn't say no to that at all but then the question is what is the order magnitude effect of the temperature variation yeah exactly and at the, at the moment the evidence is not strong enough that it accounts for this period we're going through and certainly, if it created that periodicity, it would be in evidence in this 800,000-year ice core evidence, just like a chart of the you know, Dow Jones and the effect of an external force on it would create a rhythmic cycle. It's not present. But there's also a procession, isn't there, of the, the Earth? And that is... The, pro the procession on the axis is, yeah. is, is the wobble, in effact. Yeah, 27,000 years, 20, I think it is. 26,000 years or 24,000 years. All that really does is it changes subtly the angle at which, you know, the, the Earth faces the transmission of heat. So it makes either it an ablate spheroid and slightly smaller or a more spherical object, depending on how the axis is orientated. It wouldn't account for that variability. Mm. And it doesn't show up in the ice cores. And I think the ice cores really do have to be respected as the baseline, like a chart is respected in the marketplace of the complex system and its net effect. Well, I'd have to look more into it. I mean, it sounds that sounds very interesting. And perhaps we should have a climate change debate um, because obviously you, you seem to know a lot about it. And we have had some very interesting guests on it who've um, spoken um, on the other side of it. So Gregory Wrightstone being the one I'm thinking of. Um, and I think that would be fascinating. And I, I personally, I think it's interesting to hear all ideas. Well, look, I, I'm with you. And although I sound like, you know, I mean, I've obviously made my mind up for the evidence I have. That doesn't mean I'm not open, as I always am, to any new evidence to be adaptive. And uh, so, so, yeah, I'm always happy to do that. I would just point everyone and if you go to the, my website under climate change just go and look at that 800,000 year chart of this sinusoidal self-contained system where when it got to one peak it moderated itself on the bottom the other and look at the breakout coincident with industrialization and the coincidence has to be you know it is the only thing to explain the event we're seeing 
And that's why I argue that all this um, stuff about going green and going carbon neutral, it's like literally shutting the door after everyone's bolted. Our issue is if we're really serious about it, is getting what we put in out. Otherwise, the change has already been made. Well, there are some plans to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. There are machines that are looking to do that and potentially scale up. Yeah, and I was involved in a project in the States that basically um, took rocket motors and then basically at a very high burn rate took syn gas and dirty gas and produced outputs of heat, water and CO2 and then sequestered it. And I think things like that are really the future of critical technology. But the trouble is that um, carbon sink process that we have in Europe with the European credit system doesn't allow for carbon sinks. It doesn't reward people to do it. And the Californians probably have the best carbon credit system anywhere, which does allow for it. And lo and behold, obviously, people are designing technology to do it. They have depleted oil fields to do it in safely. And the combination makes them, I think, a world leader that everyone should be watching. Do you think that we will cycle from electricity into hydrogen or do you think electric cars will be increased in capacity and range by battery technology? Look, I think we'll obviously increase battery technology because of the curve that we are, like Moore's law. So I think that's a given. I think think right now we're about to be shoved back into the Stone Age, interestingly enough, by the events we're about to go through. And it's a question of you know, what new capital is available for innovation. And innovation rarely happens unless after you've had a massive slump, unless that slump also has a war at the bottom when you're fighting for survival. So I think that many of these innovate, the innovation, the golden period of innovation in the West is probably you know, well and truly about to be curtailed. And only strategic areas supported by governments really have any chance of getting through this. Tim, I've, I've uh, hogged the mic a little bit. So no, not at all. Do you think there's any possibility, and I may have asked this the last time we spoke, that the, the current governmental system that we have in the West, which masquerades as democracy when it seems at the moment to be anything but, could get replaced by something superior? So, um, okay, superior is an interesting concept. So let's look at, let, let's go back to basic principles and then we'll evolve the conversation because it's a great question. So I have long since made the argument that humans in a hunter-gatherer form were lateral because every day was a challenge. It required creativity and adaptability. And humans that lived by the sea had that process on steroids because the sea is thoroughly entropic. And the watershed moment was the period of agrarianism when our populations boomed. And of course, one of the things about being an agrarian is the regularity of seasons and the planning ahead, which is completely different from the hunter-gathering mentality. So I think agrarianism begat the linear gene within society, which was predominantly people in the center and the middle of land. And then on the periphery, you saw the lateral gene continue with people who had to use it to survive in the sea. So the net effect is that democracy's origins and meritocracy reinforced by being on a boat, you're all in it together, and the best wins because that's how you survive. Begat democracy of self-responsibility, and it's no coincidence we see early democracy in Athens, we see Holland, and we see Britain as seafaring nations with high ratios of coastline to internal volume being the dominant drivers of this new form of leadership, moving away from hierarchy and you know a few controlling the many to a far broader base. I think now, this is the first time I've heard. I think this is the first time I've heard this uh, argument. It's really quite fascinating, isn't it? 
well, I'm glad you say I think it is, but I'm self, I'm a bit biased, but I think it's incredible because suddenly you start to understand our evolution and the fact that the human race, it's something I've developed a lot on my site because it leads to a very practical outcome, which we'll talk about. And that is that, so these large populations, so the, the Chinese, for example, they have a slight compensation in terms of a landlocked country because they use a pictogram language and pictograms are more lateral as a part of the brain's identification. So language is another factor in terms of it. But nonetheless, so when we go back and say, why didn't the Russians accept democracy or the Iraqis when we went? Because surely everyone wants it. I think the argument is their genetic disposition of self-responsibility didn't lead them to the point of adopting it quickly. Now, the Indians took you know, centuries of forced democratic history to become democratic. The Hong Kong Chinese took six generations and it took six months for the CCP to remove those people's values. Mm. And that's scary in itself. So today we face a situation where... Where if you look at the Western Christian empire, and I look at any empire, it is my premise that regionalization is dominated by linear leadership because it's pretty stable and predictive. But of course, I say relatively because all leaders are lateral, in my opinion, and they sit on a spectrum. So let's call them linear lateral, the extreme version of a lateral person looking linear, Charles I. And then along comes this revolution, spit the revolution, lateralized society, and then the system is equipped for expansion, it's militarized, and off it goes. The expansion of an empire is to do with lateral thinking because it's highly adaptive and opportunistic. When you get to the top of the cycle, of course, you're now a hegemon, you are very wealthy, and you control your environment as a massive empire. So the number of sort of shocking variables that need to be adapted to start to decrease massively. And the system creates these huge institutions which perpetuate the empire. And the one thing that these lateral people are really bad at is social politicizing. So they're the first to start getting ejected. So by the time you reach the middle of the third stage at the top, you are really starting to see the institutions throwing out their mavericks because you don't need them anymore. And by the time you go into overextension and certainly by decline, the linear thought process complete control of these large bodies. And at that stage, you've got a completely unadaptive empire system or entity that when it faces a rising system has literally thrown out all its mavericks. And I wrote a, um, this, a piece I, I watched in Top Gun, and I don't know whether you saw it, and hopefully you did. And I watched it the first time for fun, and I took my second son three days later, and I sat there and my jaw dropped, because in the maverick story is exactly what's happened to our societies. Essentially, you've got this maverick character who's incredibly talented, the Iceman, probably Maverick himself, but much more cloaked and looking far more acceptable to the linear people around him, became Admiral of the fleet. The moment he dies, he's now exposed to a completely linear system. And the first thing the guy above him does is fire him. Mm. And the first thing that guy then does is stand on lectum and say, my cunning plan is to go up the valley at half the speed. And he said it with such confidence. And all the pilots turn mm. and say, well, we're all going to die. But what's interesting is he actually thought that was going to work when the evidence was go too slowly, the defenses mobilize, you don't make it. And that really is the interesting story. And where the West is, we have got rid of our lateral leaders. Britain is trying to make that social change. But Biden, for example, is the most linear leader in American history. He's more linear than Carter was, and he was a disaster. So that's what happens in terminal decline. Linear leadership, what does he try and do? He tries to reenact Obama's Iran relationships, have the same worldview. He has not adapted one bit since the term in office as vice president and all of the people around him. 
So our problem in the West and the problem for any organization right now, which is why I've started a campaign, it's called Adaptation Through Lateralization. It's all on my site. It explains this phenomena and that basically there are two paradigms you have. If you're a lateral leader, and that's probably because you run your own business or you've got luckily through the system, you are going to lateralize naturally by drawing people like you around you. And you need to make sure you infuse the linear people to do the details and operation to create a symbiotic dynamic. But if you're a linear leader, I would pose this question, and it's very simple. It's do you serve the people you lead or do you serve yourself? Mm. Because if you serve yourself, then basically for your own survival, you need to listen. But if you serve the people you lead, you really need to surround yourself with the very people you find difficult to be with who think laterally. You need to entrust them to be adaptive in a way you're not. Now, there's someone in history that sits in an interesting juncture and I'm not sure really where he was on this, but I'm guessing he's more lateral than linear, but he may well have been linear. And that was Douglas Haig in the First World War, because Douglas Haig is epitomized as the donkey that led the lions. Mm. But the truth is, after September, when the first Mark tanks, one and two tanks were used, 48 of them, he ordered 2,000. Now, that's interesting, because that's someone who sees the future before it comes. Or Church, maybe, Churchill was also a, a tank advocate, though, wasn't he? Well, to, no, Churchill actually created the tanks as the mm. first sea lord. And, of course, when he got knocked off his perch over Gallipoli and he had to resign, the tank then went to the army. Mm. So it was a naval constructor. It was called a land battleship, because obviously it was armoured and had guns. Yeah. But what was interesting is Haig picked it up. And I don't think – I think he was somewhere in the middle. But the net effect – and my book, um, Lions There by Lions, is about it. He oversaw the evolution of this peacetime British army to the most capable fighting force on the Western Front. And by the time the Battle of Amiens came, it had fully adapted to combined arms warfare. It was led by lateral people, especially from the colonies in Australia and Canada, where the, the core leaders were, were private time soldiers or were peacetime auxiliary soldiers who then grew to command these structures. And the adaptation was phenomenal. We didn't... We didn't just win by accident. We drove the Germans out of France through this massive innovation. So it's a really good case in point to those people that are linear and lead is learn about Douglas Haig. And the mm. reason why he's much maligned is our friend Lloyd George, who, uh, who lived longer than he did, because the guy obviously carried the most massive burden, basically maligned his character and blamed the generals for things he had actually done, not the other way around. And no one ever counted it until Lance led by Lance. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah, I think on that we should go to potentially meter picks. What do you think? Was there well just before we we were to do that? Was there anything we or you wanted to talk about that we haven't asked you, David? Was there any subject that you wanted to talk about? Look, you know I'm a feather in the wind, so whatever you bring up, I'll talk. About. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm very pleased to talk about the lateralization because, interesting enough, you know I obviously. I'm warning that the stock market is about to implode. We live in a world of inflation. And one of the implications of that is we have a whole asset management business, which basically was a beta trend following system. It mm. too got rid of its mavericks, the alpha generators. It has no adaptive capability right now. And more importantly, if it, if it could ever understand who it was, it should resign. Because how mm. can you justify incremental returns with inflation at 10%? Mm. And I think we've entered a completely different investment paradigm. And obviously, my early hedge fund bills were very heavily influenced by the hedge funds that started or operated in the 70s in high inflation environments. 
And we always look back and think, what a bunch of cowboys, you know, no control. But the truth is they had to make 30% to cover 15% inflation. And to do that, you have to take much bigger risks. So I think we're about to see a fundamental shift in the in, in the industry where the beta trend falls literally disappear. And they'll disappear because they'll have destroyed most of people's pensions in the process. Mm. And we'll see the the, the the beginnings of a new alpha generative asset management organization, which obviously is far less capacity. But we're about to see an absolute sea change. And I keep thinking about when I met a guy called Stedelmar, who creates these you know market profiles you've probably seen with A, Bs and Cs for hours. Yeah. A really interesting man. And I was sort of at the stage knew I wanted to be run my own hedge fund. And I was trying to find as many people as I could essentially to learn from. And most of them were American because he didn't have them in Europe. And he came to give us, well, I went to one of his talks and he said something really profound. He said, I've been in the pits for 40 years. And I realized that every 10 years, my friendship group changed. And I've been pondering that. And I now understand what it was, is essentially the, the economic environment changed every 10 years roughly, and they didn't adapt and they all went out of business. And I learned to adapt. And I remember thinking, whatever I do, if I want to be in this business for a long time, I need a style and understanding of how the world works that has the same levels of adaptation, which is why I chose longer price systems, the telescope and shorter price systems, all the things. And that was a very seminal moment for me understanding that. And we are at one of those watersheds right now. Well, I, I, as I say, I think we've got to have you back on the show to um, expand on some of these topics and uh, to update us because um, we're clearly at a very interesting moment and it won't be long before we know who's going to be right out of potentially you or, or Akhil Patel with the cycle theory. And um, yeah, so it just, just makes for a fascinating market. And uh, just, just, yeah, if there's anything else that you wanted to add, otherwise we'll go to, to media picks. Yeah, I mean, um, you can either kiss me or shoot me then somewhere in the future, which is always the destiny of people to stick their neck out. No, but I'm happy to. Yeah, no, 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 I, it, I, I'm really happy to do that. I'm yeah, really I think happy. it's fair enough. You know, nobody's, as we said to Akil, nobody's got the monopoly yeah. on being right or wrong. You know, everybody's got a view. Yes. And I think the most important thing that comes from that, that, um, and in fact, you've you've made that point again, is it's not about being right or wrong. It's knowing when you're right or wrong and to change your strategy and adapt to the market that's in front of you and not try to force it into something you'd like it to be. And that's the problem with most people who approach the markets. They expect their strategy to work because <clears throat> it's the one they have and markets evolve and change and do very different things. So, I mean, it's one of the, it's one of those conundrums and it's beautifully put is there. One of the interesting things is obviously I, I sort of rocked up on the trading floor of JP Morgan as a scientist and, you know, geophysicist that lived in the Papua New Guinea jungle for three years thinking, I know nothing. So I'm going to watch on this trading floor and see who knows what they're talking about. So, of course, the first people I watched were economists because they should really know what's going on. And actually, I, 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 I'm going to just diverge a bit, but it'll come back to this point. Is, you know, when you turn around and say, oh, you know, in a tribe, they have a witch doctor and he sort of takes a chicken and opens up the guts on the floor and works out which way the guts are. And then you go to battle with a nearby tribe if the guts bigger in the left and bigger in the right, and there's a bit more blood. We laugh at that and we think that is absolutely hilarious. Why wouldn't someone ever do that? But we have a modern day equivalent and they're economists. And basically, the reason why economists, in my view, get away with what they do is in a long bull market, they tell all sorts of fairy tales. And because it's bullish and they tell bullish fairy tales, they look like they know what they're doing. But I haven't met many apart from maybe one who I hold really, really in, in high esteem. And he's, you know, understands price as much as he does the other dynamics, basically who can pick a trend change. 
And that is to me the ultimate test. And so we've got the same witch doctor dynamic sitting alongside people who are thoroughly linear in organizations and asset management, all reinforcing each other, which is why this is going to be such a difficult time. Are you able to name the said economist? Chris Watling. Okay, we'll have to have him on the show. Yeah, you really should. He's a super guy. And uh, in fact, I was his first client back in 2000. And he is really a, a profound thinker and his knowledge extends way beyond the realms of traditional economics. Uh, but he incorporates it, obviously. I, I couldn't recommend him more highly. Fantastic. So, um, Tim, are you okay to go to Media Picks? Absolutely. Um, given what we've just discussed, given what David's highlighted in relation to this, this fascinating um, theory about maritime endeavor and democracy i'm going to choose a blast from the past master and commander Ooh, very good which is russell quite Crow. simply russell crowe 2003 quite simply one of the most enjoyable films i've ever seen wow a real crowd pleaser goodness and, and extremely moving high praise I love indeed. that film lovely choice so um uh I was, I'm going to go with a, um, I'm going to go with a YouTube channel and I, I think end of an empire, who's going to point out the failings of people. It's got to be the comics, the comedians and who better to do it than Leo curse. He's absolutely, oh, fantastic. Oh, he's fantastic. knocking it out of the park. He's so funny and right on the money. So I'm going to share his, um, his YouTube channel in the show notes. Check him out. He's just so good and very, very funny to boot so um leo curse is mine so david do you do you have one i'm suspecting absolutely you may, i suspect it's, it's you have, may have more than it, one it's top gun maverick okay yeah. because once you stop looking at the film for the sheer enjoyment underneath it is the paradigm of where we are in the west mm. ruled governed commanded by linear thinkers in a time when we need mavericks and adaptation so every time you look at maverick look around the people around you think how can i get more of them and I think that's just a really amazing story packaged in something that everyone else finds very entertaining. Um, and it's, it's, it, therefore, it's very much of our time if we're to adapt at the speed we need to. I love the way art imitates life. I think that's so interesting. And, um, and I'm, I'm just glad we don't know anyone that's in a Top Gun parody on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Who would do a thing like that? <laughs> Ever. Yeah. So, um, but I, but one of the, one of the subsets of you know when you you've probably seen it in my you probably read the Top Gun and some of my marinations. So go back and have a read because it's kind of detailed. Oh, but I really do think there's a there's a whole correlation between you know the greatest Disney films were in bull markets, mm. horror films always top the bill in bear markets, and somehow filmmakers have this they're linked into the collective psychology where they almost anticipate the good ones, yeah. things that are going to come ahead and. I was fascinated by the Star Wars, the six Star Wars, because obviously we got the first three, which were the last three, and we got the last three, or the first three last. They inverted the order. And I was in, um, I was in um, uh, New York on Park Lane uh, seeing investors, and it was peeing with rain, and it was a race to get to one of those yellow cabs. And I got there just before this lady with an umbrella who looked like a bedraggled rat, and I took pity on and said, look, please, you know, come in because you can't go out there. Where do you want to go? We'll take you there. So we were chatting and, and I said, what do you do? She said, I'm Steven Spielberg's PA. Hmm. And I said, that's so cool. You know, I wondered if you could help me because I've been fascinated by whether he consciously understood that he was distributing the positive outcome to a bull market and the negative outcome to a bear market. And intuitively, or was it an accident? She looked at me and said, he completely understood 
what he was releasing his films into wow. in the environment of the collective. And that answered a really profound question that the best filmmakers have almost an anticipatory second sixth sense as to what will be there when they produce their film, not what is there. Mm. And I find that that's, I think, why art is a, a reflection of the collective unconsciousness. And some of it's really profound. For example, Look Up was my was my, you know, when I had to name the year, it was called Look Up because there you are looking up. And, and the whole story of denial over the meteor was a denial of Western decline and the threats it faced right in front of us in his in his hippie story. And that was another really good one that I think shaped and orchestrated the situation we're in now. Collective denial. Brilliant. Absolutely. Can't, I can't believe how much uh, ground we've covered today. Yeah, incredible. What's really lovely, it's lovely that you guys facilitate that flow of discussion. So I really want to thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your show and, and share the discussion. It's well, a pleasure to host you, David. Absolutely. Couldn't have put it better myself. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And we really look forward to having you back. Great. And for those people that you know want to learn more about markets and where they're going, there's a in effectively there's an embedded hedge fund in my site. Yes, please, please tell us where to. people can find you and all your handles. Yeah, so basically uh, go to www.davidmurrin.co.uk, which is the site. It has three basically deliveries of product. Global Forecaster is investment grade geopolitical predictions, but it's actually priced for the public. It isn't going to tell you what to sell and what to do with it. It'll give you general warnings, but they're general. Then there is a thing called Global Trader, which is basically 80 macro markets. And at the top of that is what I call my Arkham scenarios, which is about the things about how the macro sectors operate together, what to expect. So you've got a strategy to navigate through this. And then there are 80 markets within that, and they all have buys or sells. They're run real time where you get real time alerts. And then really it's net product is the product that I wanted as a CEO of my hedge fund to be given to me. So I created my dream for other people. Most people could never imagine how it works because it's not the way other people think. But the evidence is in its track record because we we track our trading points and we publish them every three months, which lets people then transpose into their portfolios. And that's on the front of the site. So you can go and look at performance and see. Um, you can buy pieces of it. You can buy all of it. It's designed to access for, for professionals. It's not for the public. And then the third piece is called Global Advisor. And Global Advisor is essentially to companies, corporations, uh, governments, and uh, the armed services. Uh, and I recently gave a speech at the UK Defence College, which is all about how I was able to predict Ukraine and the fact we are in World War Three, giving them the reasons and the interlinkage between the most likely if the equity markets fall, that will be the pretext for, for Xi to also initiate his actions as one thing sort of knocks a domino into another. So that's really if you have an organization and you, you need the big picture navigation, that's where we do it. We've got a huge group of or, or a small group of very elite clients. And those are the three products, hopefully, that will transmit these ideas out and in a cascade of change that will make a difference. And that was why we set, I set Global Forecaster up rather than a hedge fund, so I could openly share my knowledge rather than actually keep it secret and make a little money for a few, lots of money or whatever money for investors and myself, and then watch the world tumble around me, which isn't going to help anyone. Brilliant. Well, thank you once again, David. And um, as I say, we'll put all those links in the show notes, and uh, we look forward to having you back. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I'd be honoured to come back a third time if you'd have me. So um, good hunting in between. 
Absolutely. Let's be careful out there. <laughs> you know what? My favourite phrase, actually, to sum it up, I don't know. I must have watched the Battle of Britain into the hundreds. And there's a there's a scene in Tangmere when they basically they got the control of the southern England and they're moving their pieces. And the officer in command said, tin hats on everyone. <laughs> yes. We used to say that in the trading room. Tin hats. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, time for that for sure. Yeah, might might have to be the title of the um, of the podcast. So yeah, uh, I think I think it would be really good actually because yeah. it's just a, a it's such an epic phrase. Brilliant. The, Brilliant. the other one I quite like is is a line from um, Speed after a lift has, has had a bomb put on it and uh, it's it's sort of teetering over. Well, it's teetering m- midway through the building and some. And I think it's Keanu Reeves says, "What's going to stop this lift from falling?" To which response is the basement. <laughs> yeah, right. well, that's particularly relevant, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, thank you once again, David. And um, yeah, as I say, we look forward to having you back. Great. I look forward to it and good hunting. Thank Take you. Cheers, David. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.